Chapter Sixteen of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Five: The Production of Absolute and Relative Surplus Value. Chapter 16. Absolute and Relative Surplus Value. In considering the labor process, we began, see Chapter 5, by treating it in the abstract, apart from its historical forms, as a process between man and nature. We there stated, if we examine the whole labor process, from the point of view of its result, it is plain that both the instruments and the subject of labor are means of production, and that the labor itself is productive labor. And in note two, same page, we further added, this method of determining, from the standpoint of the labor process alone, what is productive labor, is by no means directly applicable to the case of the capitalist process of production. We now proceed to the further development of this subject. So far as the labor process is purely individual, one and the same laborer unites in himself all the functions that later on become separated. When an individual appropriates natural objects for his livelihood, no one controls him but himself. Afterwards he is controlled by others. A single man cannot operate upon nature without calling his own muscles into play under the control of his own brain. As in the natural body head and hand wait upon each other, so the labor process unites the labor of the hand with that of the head. Later on they part company and even become deadly foes. The product ceases to be the direct product of the individual, and becomes a social product, produced in common by a collective laborer, i.e., by a combination of workmen, each of whom takes only a part, greater or less, in the manipulation of the subject of their labor. As the cooperative character of the labor process becomes more and more marked, so, as a necessary consequence, does our notion of productive labor, and of its agent, the productive laborer, become extended. In order to labor productively, it is no longer necessary for you to do manual work yourself, enough if you are an organ of the collective laborer, and perform one of its subordinate functions. The first definition given above of productive labor, a definition deduced from the very nature of the production of material objects, still remains correct for the collective laborer, considered as a whole. But it no longer holds good for each member taken individually. On the other hand, however, our notion of productive labor becomes narrowed. Capitalist production is not merely the production of commodities, it is essentially the production of surplus value. The laborer produces, not for himself, but for capital. It no longer suffices, therefore, that he should simply produce. He must produce surplus value. That laborer alone is productive, who produces surplus value for the capitalist, and thus works for the self-expansion of capital. If we may take an example from outside the sphere of production of material objects, a schoolmaster is a productive laborer when, in addition to belaboring the heads of his scholars, he works like a horse to enrich the school proprietor. That the latter has laid out his capital in a teaching factory instead of in a sausage factory does not alter the relation. Hence the notion of a productive laborer implies not only a relation between work and useful effect, between laborer and product of labor, but also a specific social relation of production, 
a relation that has sprung up historically and stamped the laborer as the direct means of creating surplus value. To be a productive laborer is, therefore, not a piece of luck, but a misfortune. In Book Four, which treats of the history of the theory, it will be more clearly seen that the production of surplus value has at all times been made, by classical political economists, the distinguishing characteristic of the productive laborer. Hence their definition of a productive laborer changes with their comprehension of the nature of surplus value. Thus the physiocrats insist that only agricultural labor is productive, since that alone, they say, yields a surplus value. And they say so because, with them, surplus value has no existence except in the form of rent. The prolongation of the working day beyond the point at which the laborer would have produced just an equivalent for the value of his labor power, and the appropriation of that surplus labor by capital, this is production of absolute surplus value. It forms the general groundwork of the capitalist system, and the starting point for the production of relative surplus value. The latter presupposes that the working day is already divided into two parts, necessary labor and surplus labor. In order to prolong the surplus labor, the necessary labor is shortened by methods whereby the equivalent for the wages is produced in less time. The production of absolute surplus value turns exclusively upon the length of the working day. The production of relative surplus value revolutionizes out and out the technical process of labor and the composition of society. It therefore presupposes a specific mode, the capitalist mode of production, a mode which, along with its methods, means, and conditions, arises and develops itself spontaneously on the foundation afforded by the formal subjection of labor to capital. In the course of this development, the formal subjection is replaced by the real subjection of labor to capital. It will suffice merely to refer to certain intermediate forms, in which surplus labor is not extorted by direct compulsion from the producer, nor the producer himself yet formerly subjected to capital. In such forms capital has not yet acquired the direct control of the labor process. By the side of the independent producers who carry on their handicrafts and agriculture in the traditional old-fashioned way, there stands the usurer or the merchant, with his usurer's capital or merchant's capital, feeding on them like a parasite. The predominance, in a society, of this form of exploitation excludes the capitalist mode of production, to which mode, however, this form may serve as a transition, as it did towards the close of the Middle Ages. Finally, as is shown by modern domestic industry, some intermediate forms are here and there reproduced in the background of modern industry, though their physiognomy is totally changed. If, on the one hand, the mere formal subjection of labor to capital suffices for the production of absolute surplus value, if, for example, it is sufficient that handicraftsmen who previously worked on their own account, or as apprentices of a master, should become wage laborers under the direct control of a capitalist, so, on the other hand, we have seen how the methods of producing relative surplus value are, at the same time, methods of producing absolute surplus value. Nay, more, the excessive prolongation of the working day turned out to be the peculiar product of modern industry. Generally speaking, the specifically capitalist mode of production ceases to be a mere means of producing relative surplus value, so soon as that mode has conquered an entire branch of production, and still more so, so soon as it has conquered all the important branches. It then becomes the general, socially predominant form of production. As a special method of producing relative surplus value, it remains effective only 
first in so far as it seizes upon industries that previously were only formally subject to capital that is so far as it is propagandist secondly in so far as the industries that have been taken over by it continue to be revolutionized by changes in the methods of production from one standpoint any distinction between absolute and relative surplus value appears illusory relative surplus value is absolute since it compels the absolute prolongation of the working day beyond the labor time necessary to the existence of the laborer himself absolute surplus value is relative since it makes necessary such a development of the productiveness of labor as will allow of the necessary labor time being confined to a portion of the working day but if we keep in mind the behavior of surplus value this appearance of identity vanishes once the capitalist mode of production is established and become general the difference between absolute and relative surplus value makes itself felt whenever there is a question of raising the rate of surplus value assuming that labor power is paid for at its value we are confronted by this alternative given the productiveness of labor and its normal intensity the rate of surplus value can be raised only by the actual prolongation of the working day on the other hand given the length of the working day that rise can be effected only by a change in the relative magnitudes of the components of the working day viz necessary labor and surplus labor a change which if the wages are not to fall below the value of labor power presupposes a change either in the productiveness or in the intensity of the labor if the laborer wants all his time to produce the necessary means of subsistence for himself and his race he has no time left in which to work gratis for others without a certain degree of productiveness in his labor he has no such superfluous time at his disposal without such superfluous time no surplus labor and therefore no capitalists no slave owners no feudal lords in one word no class of large proprietors note the very existence of the master capitalists as a distinct class is dependent on the productiveness of industry ramsay first c page two o six if each man's labor were but enough to produce his own food there could be no property ravenstone first c pages fourteen and fifteen End note. Thus we may say that surplus value rests on a natural basis, but this is permissible only in the very general sense, that there is no natural obstacle absolutely preventing one man from disburdening himself of the labor requisite for his own existence, and burdening another with it, any more, for instance, than unconquerable natural obstacle prevent one man from eating the flesh of another. No mystical ideas must in any way be connected, as sometimes happens, with this historically developed productiveness of labor. It is only after men have raised themselves above the rank of animals, when, therefore, their labor has been to some extent socialized, that a state of things arises in which the surplus labor of the one becomes a condition of existence for the other. At the dawn of civilization, the productiveness acquired by labor is small, but so too are the wants which develop with and by the means of satisfying them. Further, at that early period, the portion of society that lives on the labor of others is infinitely small, compared with the mass of direct producers. Along with the progress in the productiveness of labor, that small portion of society increases both absolutely and relatively. Besides, capital, with its accompanying relations, springs up from an economic soil that is the product of a long process of development. The productiveness of labor that serves as its foundation and starting point is a gift, not of nature, but of a history embracing thousands of centuries. Note. According to a recent calculation, there are yet at least four million cannibals in those parts of the earth which have already been explored. 
End note. Note. Among the wild Indians in America, almost everything is the laborers. Ninety-nine parts of a hundred are to be put upon the account of labor. In England, perhaps, the laborer has not two-thirds. The Advantages of the East India Trade, pages 73. End note. Apart from the degree of development, greater or less, in the form of social production, the productiveness of labor is fettered by physical conditions. These are all referable to the constitution of man himself, race, etc., and to surrounding nature. The external physical conditions fall into two great economic classes. 1. Natural wealth in means of subsistence, i.e., a fruitful soil, waters teeming with fish, etc., and 2. Natural wealth in the instruments of labor, such as waterfalls, navigable rivers, wood, metal, coal, etc. At the dawn of civilization, it is the first class that turns the scale. At a higher stage of development, it is the second. Compare, for example, England with India, or in ancient times, Athens and Corinth with the shores of the Black Sea. The fewer the number of natural wants, imperatively calling for satisfaction, and the greater the natural fertility of the soil and the favorableness of the climate, so much less is the labor-time necessary for the maintenance and reproduction of the producer. So much greater, therefore, can be the excess of his labors for others over his labor for himself. Diodorus long ago remarked this in relation to the ancient Egyptians. It is altogether incredible how little trouble and expense the bringing up of their children causes them. They cook for them the first simple food at hand. They also give them the lower part of the papyrus stem to eat, so far as it can be roasted in the fire, and the roots and stalks of marsh plants, some raw, some boiled and roasted. Most of the children go without shoes and unclothed, for the air is so mild. Hence a child, until he is grown up, costs his parents not more, on the whole, than twenty drachmas. It is this, chiefly, which explains why the population of Egypt is so numerous, and therefore why so many great works can be undertaken. Note. For Diodorus, first C. 80. End note. Nevertheless, the grand structures of ancient Egypt are less due to the extent of its population than to the large proportion of it that was freely disposable. Just as the individual laborer can do more surplus labor in proportion as his necessary labor time is less, so with regard to the working population. The smaller the part of it which is required for the production of the necessary means of subsistence, so much the greater is the part that can be set to do other work. Capitalist production once assumed, then, that all other circumstances remaining the same, and given the length of the working day, the quantity of surplus labor will vary with the physical conditions of labor, especially with the fertility of the soil. But it by no means follows from this that the most fruitful soil is the most fitted for the growth of the capitalist mode of production. This mode is based on the domination of man over nature. Where nature is too lavish, she keeps him in hand like a child in leading-strings. She does not impose upon him any necessity to develop himself. It is not the tropics, with their luxuriant vegetation, but the temperate zone, that is the mother country of capital. It is not the mere fertility of the soil, but the differentiation of the soil, the variety of its natural products, the changes of the seasons, which form the physical basis for the social division of labor, and which, by changes in the natural surroundings, spur man on to the multiplication of his wants, his capabilities, his means and modes of labor. It is the necessity of bringing a natural force under the control of society, of economizing, of appropriating or subduing it on a large scale by the work of man's hand, that first plays the decisive part in the history of industry. 
Examples are the irrigation works in Egypt, Lombardy, Holland, or in India and Persia, where irrigation, by means of artificial canals, not only supplies the soil with the water indispensable to it, but also carries down to it, in the shape of sediment from the hills, mineral fertilizers. The secret of the flourishing state of industry in Spain and Sicily, under the dominion of the Arabs, lay in their irrigation works. Note. The first natural wealth, as it is most noble and advantageous, so doth it make the people careless, proud, and given to all excesses, whereas the second enforces vigilancy, literature, arts, and policy. England's treasure by foreign trade, or the balance of our foreign trade is the rule of our treasure, written by Thomas Munn of London, merchant, and now published for the common good by his son John Munn, London, 1669, pages 181 and 182. Nor can I conceive a greater curse upon a body of people than to be thrown upon a spot of land, where the productions for subsistence and food were, in great measure, spontaneous, and the climate required or admitted little care for raiment and covering. There may be an extreme on the other side. A soil incapable of produce by labor is quite as bad as a soil that produces plentifully without any labor. An inquiry into the present high price of provisions. London, 1767, page 10. End note. Note. The necessity for predicting the rise and fall of the Nile created Egyptian astronomy, and with it the dominion of the priests as directors of agriculture. The solstice is the moment of the year when the Nile begins to rise, and it is the moment the Egyptians have had to watch for with the greatest attention. It was the evolution of the tropical year which they had to establish firmly, so as to conduct their agricultural operations in accordance with it. They therefore had to search the heavens for a visible sign of the solstice's return. Cuvier, Discours sur la révolution du globe, Edition Hofer, Paris, 1863, page 141. End note. Note. One of the material bases of the power of the state over the small, disconnected producing organisms in India was the regulation of the water supply. Though Mohammedan rulers of India understood this better than their English successors, it is enough to recall to mind the famine of 1866 which cost the lives of more than a million Hindus in the district of Orissa in the Bengal Presidency. End note. Favorable natural conditions alone give us only the possibility, never the reality, of surplus labor, nor, consequently, of surplus value and a surplus product. The result of difference in the natural conditions of labor is this, that the same quantity of labor satisfies, in different countries, a different mass of requirements, Consequently, that under circumstances, in other respects analogous, the necessary labor-time is different. These conditions affect surplus labor only as natural limits, i.e., by fixing the points at which labor, for others, can begin. In proportion as industry advances, these natural limits recede. In the midst of our West European society, where the laborer purchases the right to work for his own livelihood only by paying for it in surplus labor, the idea easily takes root, that it is an inherent quality of human labor to furnish a surplus product. But consider, for example, an inhabitant of the eastern islands of the Asiatic archipelago, where sago grows wild in the forests. Note. There are no two countries which furnish an equal number of the necessaries of life in equal plenty, and with the same quantity of labor. Men's wants increase or diminish with the severity or temperateness of the climate they live in, Consequently, the proportion of trade which the inhabitants of different countries are obliged to carry on, through necessity, cannot be the same, nor is it practicable to ascertain the degree of variation farther than by the degrees of heat and cold. 
from whence one may make this general conclusion, that the quantity of labor required for a certain number of people is greatest in cold climates, and least in hot ones, for in the former men not only want more clothes, but the earth more cultivating than in the latter. An Essay Governing the Causes of the Natural Rate of Interest, London, 1750, page 60. The author of this epic-making anonymous work is J. Massey. Hume took his theory of interest from it. End note. Note. Chaque travail doit. This appears also to be part of the droit et devoir du citoyen. Laissez un excédent. All labor must leave a surplus. Prudent. End note. When the inhabitants have convinced themselves, by boring a hole in the tree, that the pith is ripe, the trunk is cut down and divided into several pieces. The pith is extracted, mixed with water, and filtered. It is then quite fit for use as sago. One tree commonly yields three hundred pounds, and occasionally five hundred to six hundred pounds. There, then, people go into the forests and cut bread for themselves, just as with us they cut firewood. Note. F. Chou, Die Erde, Die Pflanze und der Mensch, Edition Leipzig, 1854, page 148. End note. Suppose now such an eastern bread-cutter requires twelve working hours a week for the satisfaction of all his wants. Nature's direct gift to him is plenty of leisure time. Before he can apply this leisure time productively for himself, a whole series of historical events is required. Before he spends it in surplus labor for strangers, compulsion is necessary. If capitalist production were introduced, the honest fellow would perhaps have to work six days a week, in order to appropriate to himself the product of one working day. The bounty of nature does not explain why he would then have to work six days a week, or why he must furnish five days of surplus labor. It explains only why his necessary labor time would be limited to one day a week. But in no case would his surplus labor arise from some occult quality inherent in human labor. Thus, not only does the historically developed social productiveness of labor, but also its natural productiveness, appear to be productiveness of the capital with which that labor is incorporated. Ricardo never concerns himself about the origin of surplus value. He treats it as a thing inherent in the capitalist mode of production, which mode, in his eyes, is the natural form of social production. Whenever he discusses the productiveness of labor, he seeks in it not the cause of surplus value, but the cause that determines the magnitude of that value. On the other hand, his school has openly proclaimed the productiveness of labor to be the originating cause of profit. Read, surplus value. This, at all events, is a progress as against the mercantilists, who, on their side, derived the excess of the price over the cost of production of the product from the act of exchange, from the product being sold above its value. Nevertheless, Ricardo's school simply shirked the problem, they did not solve it. In fact, these bourgeois economists instinctively saw, and rightly so, that it is very dangerous to stir too deeply the burning question of the origin of surplus value. But what are we to think of John Stuart Mill, who half a century after Ricardo solemnly claims superiority over the mercantilists by clumsily repeating the wretched evasions of Ricardo's earliest vulgarizers? Mill says, The cause of profit is that labor produces more than is required for its support. So far, nothing but the old story, but Mill, wishing to add something of his own, proceeds. To vary the form of the theorem, the reason why capital yields a profit is because food, clothing, materials, and tools last longer than the time which was required to produce them. Here confounds the duration of labor time with the duration of its products. 
According to this view, a baker whose product lasts only a day could never extract from his workpeople the same profit as a machine-maker whose products endure for twenty years and more. Of course, it is very true that if a bird's nest did not last longer than the time it takes in building, birds would have to do without nests. This fundamental truth once established, Mill establishes his own superiority over the mercantilists. We thus see, he proceeds, that profit arises not from the incident of exchange, but from the productive power of labor, and the general profit of the country is always what the productive power of labor makes it, whether any exchange takes place or not. If there were no division of employments, there would be no buying or selling, but there would still be profit. For mill, then, exchange, buying, and selling, those general conditions of capitalist production, are but an incident, and there would always be profits even without the purchase and sale of labor-power. If, he continues, the laborers of the country collectively produce twenty percent more than their wages, profits will be twenty percent, whatever prices may or may not be. This is, on the one hand, a rare bit of tautology, for if laborers produce a surplus value of twenty percent for the capitalist, his profit will be, to the total wages of the laborers, as twenty to one hundred. On the other hand, it is absolutely false to say that profits will be twenty percent. They will always be less, because they are calculated upon the sum total of the capital advanced. If, for example, the capitalists have advanced five hundred pounds, of which four hundred pounds is laid out in means of production and one hundred pounds in wages, and the rate of surplus value be twenty percent, the rate of profit will be twenty to five hundred, i.e., four percent, and not twenty percent. Then follows a splendid example of Mill's method of handling the different historical forms of social production. I assume throughout the state of things which, where laborers and capitalists are separate classes, prevails, with few exceptions, universally, namely, that the capitalist advances the whole expenses, including the entire remuneration of the laborer. Strange optical illusion to see everywhere a state of things which as yet exists only exceptionally on our earth. Note. In earlier editions of Capital, the quotation from John Stuart Mill, I assume throughout, of the laborer, had been given incorrectly, the words, where the laborers and capitalists are separate classes, having been left out. Marx, in a letter dated November 28, 1878, pointed this out to Danielson, the Russian translator of Capital, adding, The next two sentences, viz., strange optical allusion to see everywhere a state of things which as yet exists only exceptionally on our earth, but let us finish, should be deleted, and the following sentence substituted. Mr. Mill is good enough to believe that this state of things is not an absolute necessity, even in that economic system in which laborers and capitalists are separate classes. The substance of this note has been taken from the Volksab. The quotation from Mill is from his Principles of Political Economy, Book 2, Chapter 15, 5. End note. But let us finish. Mill is willing to concede that he should do so is not a matter of inherent necessity. On the contrary, the labourer might wait until the production is complete for all that part of his wages which exceeds mere necessities, and even for the whole, if he has funds in hand sufficient for his temporary support. But in the latter case, the labourer is to that extent really a capitalist on the concern, by supplying a portion of the funds necessary for carrying it on. Mill might have gone further, and have added, that the labourer who advances to himself not only the necessaries of life, but also the means of production, is in reality nothing but his own wage-labourer. He might also have said that the American peasant proprietor is but a serf, who does enforced labour for himself instead of for his lord. 
After thus proving clearly that even if capitalist production had no existence, still it would always exist, Mill is consistent enough to show, on the contrary, that it has no existence, even when it does exist. And even in the former case, when the workman is a wage-laborer to whom the capitalist advances all the necessaries of life, he, the laborer, may be looked upon in the same light, i.e., as a capitalist, since, contributing his labor at less than the market price, he may be regarded as lending the difference to his employer, and receiving it back with interest, etc. Note. John Stuart Mill, Principles of Political Economy, London, 1868, pages 252 to 253. Passum. End note. In reality, the laborer advances his labor gratuitously to the capitalist during, say, one week, in order to receive the market price at the end of the week, and it is this which, according to Mill, transforms him into a capitalist. On the level plain, simple mounds look like hills, and the imbecile flatness of the present bourgeoisie is to be measured by the altitude of its great intellects. End of Part 5, Chapter 16